You are now listening to Bookish. The canon continues. The podcast that's dismantling the sacred secular divide with your host, Michelle Collins. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome back to Bookish. The canon continues. Uh, I am your host, Michelle Collins. Of course, our tagline here is that we are bridging the sacred and secular divide book by book. Um, And basically what that means is we believe that God still inspires writing today, that there is a plethora of people who have interesting things to say on spiritual and secular subjects, and that we should consider them both secular and spiritual as they bring value to our life and we can make uh, certain ideas or certain thoughts uh, relevant to our walk with God. And so today I'm bringing a subject. I'm going to introduce the subject today. I will be honest and say the book that I am reviewing, I'm actually not done with. I'm going back through it. Um, I'm finding a lot more here that needs to be said. Um, but also I felt the need to kind of set up a conversation that we'll be having in the coming weeks. I have somebody interested in this subject matter and he had a different book. Um, I wanted a little background so that I understood that book better. Uh, so I picked this one up. Uh, so as I said, it's going to be a difficult subject. I'm going to introduce the subject. Uh, the subject is that of policing in our societies or in our culture here in the United States. Um, of course, as I am recording this, we are post-election. Um, that's created its own little uh, interruption in our lives and continues apparently to interrupt our lives on a daily basis until it is actually finalized. I'll be honest with you. Um, I won't feel as though things are completely set until, of course, the Electoral College is certified uh, in the next few weeks. However, in years past, we have faithfully followed the predictions that are put out by the mainstream media as far as to who has won or you know, appears to have won an election. However, we are seeing something very, very different right now. This is the first time, certainly in my lifetime, and I think in totality, that a sitting president has declared an, uh, an election fraudulent um, it, on such a grand level. I mean, there's been allegations before voter fraud and things like that. Typically, if you go and do the research, what you find is that it is an incredibly small percentage um, of votes that are problematic. Often that is a case of carelessness. Um, there are those few cases where it is negligence um, based on ideology. However, that is very few and far between, and the overall occurrences is an incredibly small amount. So the idea that an election could be stolen, I'm using air quotes, uh, or fraudulent in its entirety, I'm using air quotes again, uh, seems almost unthinkable. I'm not quite sure how that would happen. But anyway, we are seeing that. We are we are hearing and seeing that in our society, of course, right now. Uh, even going further after the certification of the Electoral College, um, I am positive that, that for many people, it will not be a completed process until the inauguration of the next president, which at this point, based on all of the information that's out there and pertinent, is Joe Biden. Um, I know that there are quite a few people and pretty loud and opinionated people in our country who feel as though our current president, uh, Donald Trump, has been cheated somehow and they are refusing to accept the outcome of the election. I'll be honest, 
in the last election, I did not want to accept the outcome of that one. So I can understand their angst. However, um, I just know for myself anyway, at that time, I never even thought for a moment that there was any kind of grand scale fraud that allowed for that presidency to materialize. So that being said, I'm sure you can probably guess uh, where my leanings are. I will be honest with you. I did not get to vote in this election. I was deeply upset by that. Many of you know I was moving across the country uh, in the late summer as I got to my new home and was settling in and was trying to get acclimated, uh, which includes, of course, registering a vehicle, establishing an address, you know, getting um, a driver's license. That process has been interrupted by COVID. Much of those agencies were shut down. Uh, or, or working from limited perspective. And as such, I was not able to get a driver's license in my new state by the deadline for registering to vote. So, and I'll even be more honest and say, I wondered then if that meant I could still vote in California, but as I wasn't living there anymore, I didn't want to take that risk. I didn't want to make a mistake. And it would have been an ignorant mistake uh, because I just honestly didn't know if that was okay or not. Um, so I'm, I was very disappointed I did not get to vote in this election. Um, but even though I didn't, I am of course somebody that is a citizen of this country. I have to abide by that election, um, regardless of my comfort levels with it or not. And the same is true for everybody. I only bring up the election. I know I kind of droned on there for a minute, but I only bring up the election because I feel that much of the rhetoric surrounding our political environment has created a lot of feelings, um, you know, emotions or viewpoints around the ideas of policing. Of course, we've had a lot of unrest over the summer and into the fall in our country as it pertains to uh, racial profiling, police violence, uh, things of this nature. And as such, it, it necessitates and invites a deeper discussion on the subject matter. I think it's very easy for all of us to create um, you know, a conversation in our own mind that pretty much follows what we already think or believe. And so I feel very, very strongly that we have to step outside of what we think and what we know, and we have to investigate. And so because of that, I am looking at this idea of policing um, because I've heard the uh, emotional rhetoric that we need to get away. We need to get rid of police officers. Um, in moments of frustration, I've probably felt that way when I've watched what the outcome has been in our societies and in our communities. Um, do I think that's realistic? I don't know. I honestly, my knee jerk reaction is that is not realistic. Uh, I also question, and I will bring this up as I go through uh, the the bigger points of this book. I don't know if we are at a place where we can turn this around anymore. I don't know if we have progressed too far down a certain road that we have left ourselves out of options, uh, so to speak. Um, I also feel that this subject matter has a larger audience, if you will, uh, or a subject matter, if you will, in the ideas of violence. Um, we are very much a society that centers on violence. Um, I mean, just look at our budget for the military. And for the, those of you that don't know, I am former military. I served our country in the United States Marine Corps. I swore an oath to the constitution of this country. I believe in the constitution of this country. And I feel though, in spite of that, that we have militarized much of our viewpoints 
as it pertains to societies and communities and the ways in which we function and, and, you know, put those things out there. We're coming from that viewpoint. So with that in mind, again, this is an overview of a topic. I'm going to be pretty broad in general. I'm going to cite some studies, some statistics. I can get my mouth to work today and um, kind of bring up some ideals. And then, of course, this will be a subject that we will examine a little deeper in uh, in the coming weeks in another episode. So the book that I am looking at today is not the book that I'm talking about we'll be doing in a few weeks, but this book is called The End of Policing. It's by Alex S. Vitale, V-I-T-A-L-E. I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. I'm probably not, but that's how it's spelled. Um, Alex is a professor of sociology and the coordinator of policing and social justice, justice project at Brooklyn College. Um, his writings, he apparently writes on the subject quite often. He's appeared in the New York Times, New York Daily News, USA Today, The Nation, and Vice News. Um, I think it's imperative that on this subject matter, we listen to those in the sociological field as they are studying culture and societies um, and communities, uh, often at a macro level, but even further, and he does bring up this subject in the book, I believe that we have to include in the subject those people working in the mental health profession, because much of what we are seeing has to have that voice associated with it in order to combat any kind of military, 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 or militaristic, I guess is the word I'm trying to use, um, response to ongoing problems in our communities. Um, so as I said, the book's called The End of Policing. Um, I wanted to open up, I wanted to read you a little bit of the beginning because I really feel as though it sets the stage and it kind of sets the tone as to the seriousness of this subject matter. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to read you a small amount of this first chapter. Tamir Rice and John Crawford were both shot to death in Ohio because an officer's first instinct was to shoot. Anthony Hill outside Atlanta, Antonio Zambrano Montez in Pasco, California, and Jason Harris in Dallas were all shot to death by police who misunderstood their mental illnesses. As I mentioned, mental illness should be a part of this conversation. Oscar Grant in Oakland, Akai Gurley in Brooklyn, and Eric Harris in Tulsa were all shot by mistake, that's in, Eric, that's in quotes, because officers didn't use enough care in handling their weapons. North Charleston, South Carolina police officer Michael Slager, Slager shot Walter Scott in the back for fleeing a traffic stop and potential arrest for missed child support. I, that's that's astounding to me, by the way. That's my own commentary there. But uh, he then went on to plant evidence on him as part of a cover-up, which was backed up by other officers. On Staten Island, Eric Garner was killed in part because of an overly aggressive police response to his allegedly selling loose cigarettes. The recent killings of so many unarmed black men by police in so many different circumstances, have pushed the issue of police reform onto the national agenda in a way not seen in over a generation. Now, of course, he is referencing back to the civil rights era, uh, in which there was quite a few issues with um, protesting and the response to those protests, often being violent uh, protests, often being violent responses. Um, so he's saying this is the first 
in an, in over a generation. Because I think for most people, we have assumed, I certainly have grown up not giving this much thought in all honesty, we have assumed that the issues of racial segregation have been settled, that uh, for the most part, the difficulties with racial se- segregation have been solved, and that those minorities living in minority uh, communities are receiving justice. They're receiving the same advantages or opportunities that the rest of us in America expect or experience. The reality, however, is that's just not true. And we know this if we're listening to the voices associated with the discussion. Primarily those voices of those who live in those communities, those who are experiencing what those communities have to offer and the response to those communities. Um, We have to listen to those voices. I realize that there are minority voices in a more conservative uh, perspective that say it has gotten better. And, and I think they're right. I think more people now of minority status are attending school than probably ever before. I think uh, there's a lot more opportunity based on that education for people of color. However, to say that that, in, that, that levels the playing field is erroneous um, because that is not the reality or the experience of the majority of people living in minority communities. And so we have to start asking these questions. We have to start saying, what are the issues that our, our country is facing What are the issues that are most prevalent on the hearts of the citizens of this country and specifically those communities or individuals of minority status? Because they have a voice and we need to listen to it. And we've not done a very good job historically in doing so. So this book, of course, he wants to challenge the idea um, that policing as we experience it now is okay. and. He goes into some ideas about what we could do, the things that have been attempted in this process, and he brings up a lot of things. Um, He begins in this first chapter talking about reforms. Um, uh, He says, any effort to make policing more than more just must address the problems of excessive force over policing and disrespect for the public. Um, Now, that's a hard pill to swallow, and I, I, of course, have quite a few acquaintances and uh, several friends who are in law enforcement. And I think that they would vehemently disagree with that, that they are only responding in kind. And to some degree that may be true. And that was my point in saying, have we gone too far in a certain direction to actually make a concerted effort to change and have it be successful? Um, That is what they're seeing on a daily basis. And so I think that from their viewpoint, they're saying this must be the response, but we have to look outside of that. Um, change comes through being uncomfortable sometimes. And so we have to start being a little more uncomfortable with what we are discussing and, and our ideas in how to repair or fix those issues. Um, one of the first things he of course brings up is training. Uh, in many of these cases, uh, particularly with the gentleman that was suing, uh, not suing, who was selling uh, loose cigarettes. One of the things that evolved out of that was a change in the training of the police officers in that area. And so it sounds as though, you know, oh, we're doing this training program, we're changing how we're doing this, and it's going to be better. And so we end up going, oh, okay, there's making, they're making a concerted effort without there being enough follow-up, without there being any study 
at, at an educated level of, of the results of that training, the changes that may or may not have happened because of that chain of that training. So of course, training in, in this gentleman, in, in the author's opinion, ignores two important factors in, in the death of the gentleman that was selling loose cigarettes. The first is that the officers had a casual disregard for his well-being. We saw this play out because, of course, this book was written prior to um, George Floyd. And again, we saw the same kind of injury in which he was held down. Uh, there was very little concern given for his well-being, even though he was vocalizing that he was in distress. And so that's the author's point here. There's a casual disregard for the well-being of the person. And this gentleman had said, I can't breathe as well, just like George Floyd did. And there was a seemingly indifferent reaction to their lifelessness. There was no desire or attempt to ensure that that person was still living. Now, I know often that first responders are police officers. Um, more so than paramedics or firefighters, if you will. And because of that, they are trained in life savings uh, procedures. So for them to completely disregard someone who is saying they are in distress, not check that person and not perform any kind of life saving measures to a person who has been discovered to be in distress is upsetting. Um, and it goes a long way toward looking at their general overall mindset, if you will, with regard to the community in which they are serving. Um, the author goes on to say, this is a problem of values and seems to go to the heart of the claim that for too many police, black lives don't matter. Now, whether you believe that to be true or not, again, we have to go back to the voices of those who are experiencing it and saying, is this your perspective? Is this how you feel? Do you feel disregarded? Do you feel as though your lives don't matter? And Many of them, because I've asked those questions to many of my friends who are people of color, and yes, they feel that way. Now, of course, the people that I come in contact with is relatively few, and so I'm sure there's a larger audience that should be asked those questions, but I really do believe firmly that people of minority status, if asked that question, would overwhelmingly say, yes, I feel as though my life doesn't matter in the current climate of our society. Now. Again, that goes against what our traditional thoughts may be. And so it is hard for us to hear that and accept it as fact. Um, we have an ongoing debate in our country over pro-life uh, issues and abortion. Of course, with the change in the Supreme Court that has happened over the last few years, that is a subject matter that has been revived. And so that is where it becomes con convoluted for me. If we are a culture or a society that is intent on being pro-life, then we have to associate that across the board to other subject matter other than just unborn children. We have to also associate pro-life with those who are already living and are facing mortality at the hands of policing. We have to look at it from their perspective too and say, what constitutes pro-life in this situation? Now that's my commentary. That's not in the book. Um, anyway, so he, he talks about training, uh, and the fact that it, it doesn't seem to be something that is considered important. He goes on, I thought this was an interesting point. He goes on, he calls, um, 
a style of policing. He calls it the broken windows style policing. And he said this targets low-level infractions for intensive, invasive, invasive, and aggressive enforcement. The idea here is that um, apparently there's been studies or research done, behavioral research, that showed if a car is left unattended on a street, it's usually left alone. But if even if just one window of that car is broken, the car is quickly vandalized. So his point here is that we have communities that are that are not kept up that have this poverty mindset, this poverty appearance, if you will, uh, broken down buildings, broken windows, vandalism, um, graffiti and whatnot. And because of this, this idea of it being already broken down, the research shows that that will continue and will accelerate as opposed to a neighborhood in which there is upkeep. So there's a perception at work here. The community itself is breaking down as a result of community actions and disregard uh, for the well-being of that community. In Because of that, it accelerates and continues. And then the policing force within that community sees it as not as important. Now, that's my interpretation of his intent. So I, somebody else maybe gets something different after reading this. But anyway, um, I'm only here to provide you with my interpretation of this. So you're stuck with it. Um, anyway, so of course, he's talking about training needing to take place. Um, I'm going to skip around here because uh, honestly, I'm going a little slower than I thought. Um, he also talks about diversity. Again, this is another conversation in which we uh, have heard uh, ideas about we need greater diversity within the policing ranks. Um, his contention is that diversity already exists within the policing ranks and actually falls pretty in line with the overall percentage of the population. So, for example, he's saying that 75% of the population is white, uh, or I'm sorry, 72% is white, 75% of police nationally are white. Uh, black males make up 13% of the population and 12% of the police. So he's saying, look, there's already a correlation between the diversity of the police force as compared to the diversity of the country. So that is not necessarily the problem because the, the issue still is that if you have a greater preponderance of white officers, that's who you're going to see more of on the streets, even into the communities in which it is a greater preponderance of people of color. So it still appears as though there's not diversity. Uh, he goes on to make the point, and I think it's a valid point, that in in those communities that are white or you know majority white, seeing a black officer is that they have black officers. The diversity is there. They're just not concerned with it because they haven't had to be traditionally, and so it's 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 still a perspective issue, and so we have to look at that. Um, he also talks about procedural justice. Uh, in dealing with how the law is enforced as opposed to any kind of substantive justice in which the outcome of the fu- is the function of the system. In other words, you know, is, is the law enforced in a way that brings about actual substantive justice or is it just enforced regardless? There's no, there's no gray, if you will. It's all black and white and no pun intended there, but that's what it is. It's all black and white. There's no gray associated with the circumstance. Um, it's the law is the law. We define the law based on this way. And as such, we police according to that without knowing circumstances. And that, of course, can lead to a lot of 
problematic misunderstandings. Um, one of the things that he does bring up is community policing. Um, everyone likes the idea of a neighborhood police officer who knows and respects the community. Um, but according to him, this is a mythic understanding of the history and nature of urban policing. Um, so while we need police to follow the law and be restrained in their use of force, we can't expect them to be significantly more friendly than they are, um, given the current role in society. I think that's realistic. We have to really, you know, Barney Fife isn't controlling the streets. We don't live in Mayberry. And so we do have to look at this from a very realistic perspective. Uh, he does go into enhanced accountability. In other words, like independent prosecutors that are looking at, at the circ circumstances of cases and saying, is there more going on here? Um, federal intervention. Uh, many advocates have called, you know, on the idea that the federal government needs to be more involved in holding the local police accountable and investigating systematic policies and practices. Um, I kind of agree with that. I really feel like that should be the case, um, certainly within states, that the governing powers of the state at the governor level, at the state and, you know, Senate and House level, they should be looking at those things uh, in, to ensure that the citizens under their care are enjoying their civil rights. Um, another thing he brings up, of course, is body cameras. We've already seen problematic issues with body cameras. The idea, of course, being that that there is a greater amount of accountability based on us being able to see what is happening from the, from the officer's purview. However, this of course does not take into account misfunctioning equipment first and foremost, but certainly humans who decide to turn those off. Um, and so that's a problem. That's something we have to look at. So he does bring up this subject matter he also in this first, and this is all in the first chapter. That's why I'm saying this is a very large subject matter. He also does bring up the idea of alternatives. Um, of course, one that we have heard shouted from the rooftop, rooftops, especially since the summer is disarming the police. Now, I think that there are people that probably say disarm the police and mean that in totality, but the greater majority of people that I've spoken with that I've read articles on and books that I've read has been around this idea of we need to disarm the police from being a military presence. Uh, certainly no one is saying they shouldn't have guns, or I should say relatively few people are saying they shouldn't have guns. What they're saying is that the, the departmental budgets of police departments in our country is unusually high and often includes um, funds for military-grade weapons and response teams rather than things that are more realistic for the everyday policing of a community. Uh, the reality is people are going to behave the way they are treated. So if we, if we treat them as though they are part of a third world country with this very large military presence, that's what they're going to be. That's what you know, is going to be seen. So we have to be careful. So this idea of disarming the police actually goes back to the idea of lowering the amount of money that is pervasive in the departments for the proliferation of military style weapons. Um, also the different, I mean, we all have watched television shows. I mean, I think that's probably part of the problem in my honest opinion is that we have a perspective of what's really happening based on what we watch on TV. Um, and so of course we've seen 
SWAT teams and things like that. Well, there's been an increase in those kind of policing departments, which of course is very militaristic. Um, He goes on to say that more than anything, what we really need is to rethink the role of police in our societies. Um, The origin and the function of police are intimately tied to the management of inequalities of race and class, the suppression of workers, and the tight surveillance and micromanagement of black and brown lives have always been at the center of policing. Um, Again, that's going to be disagreed with stringently by some areas of of our society because there is still the element of racial tension and racial stereotypes, um, discrimination. As much as we like to think that we are post-racist in this country, we are not. Um, there, and and I, honestly, in the last few years, we've seen much more instances of it. Instances of it. It has become more prolific or prevalent, obviously, and noticeable. Um, and so we do have to recognize that they that any of these changes or these reforms are going to be seen as negatives from a certain sector of our society. But what works overall? That's what we have to look at. So that's all in the first chapter. As I said, he really gets um, pretty in-depth on a lot of things. I'm going to skip ahead because, as I said, I want to be mindful of time. But one of the areas that I thought was very interesting is that he brings up and he defines this or names it the school-to-prison pipeline. Um, and he goes into a discussion on school resource officers, but I'm going to read the first little bit here for you. He says in 2005, three police officers in Florida forcibly arrested a five year old African American girl for misbehaving in school. See, now I'm not sure who would look at that and say that that's okay. In all honesty, we're talking about a five year old child. That seems to me to be an overreach of policing. Uh, certainly five year olds don't need to be arrested. They may need, they may need some counseling. They may need discipline, but to arrest a five-year-old because she was misbehaving, um, apparently was captured on video. Singer and civil rights activist, Harry Belafonte, like most others, was appalled by what he saw and initiated a campaign to train the next generation of civil rights activists, the Gathering for Justice, which in turn created the Justice League. And I bring this up because that is an important force in the Black Lives Matter movement. Now, for many people, hearing the term Black Lives Matter is an automatic turnoff because it has been politicized into an organization that we have labeled as terroristic. Nothing can be further from the truth. While there are, I'm certain, within the Black Lives Matter movement, people who do believe very military, militaristic, cannot get my mouth to work today. Um, the greater preponderance of the people involved in that movement are about changes to society that allow for uh, greater equality of people of color or for people of color. Um, but I brought that up because I think that's at the core of that group's demands is a call to end the criminalization of young people in school. That's important in our inner cities. Um, incredibly important. So again, he goes into a discussion on the school resource officers and how that came about, uh, traces back to the 1950s. Um, and as we have seen, because we've had a greater preponderance of school shootings in recent years, of course, having a police presence on campuses has become more prevalent and more accepted. Um, I don't believe that my children ever attended a school in which there was a police presence on campus, although maybe I'm wrong. 
and it may have been a school resource officer because I think they were doing um, the DARE program, of course, if many of you are familiar with that, in which it was a drug and alcohol, you know, educational program within the schools and within a lot of schools. And so I think that maybe they were, had been associated with that, but certainly um, my children never grew up in a place where that was a real part of their day. There was no metal detectors to walk into their schools. Um, however, that's a reality for a lot of kids in our society, that that is their everyday um, experience in school. Now, of course, many kids are at home right now because of COVID, but um, those, those metal detectors are still sitting there. Um, of course, we've had those great major school shootings like Columbine um, that have created this mindset or this need that we have to have uh, armed police presence on campus to protect students. Um, even as recent as just a year ago, I remember hearing arguments that teachers should actually be armed. I disagree with that. I, I don't want a teacher having to think about that while they're teaching my children. Um, and I think that there are other ways of handling it. So as I said, he goes into the school to prison pipeline. Um, he's talking about different school districts across the country in which there is a greater police presence, uh, specifically, as I mentioned, in those minority school uh, areas, and that that creates this, this uh, environment or atmosphere that becomes the norm for those children attending those schools uh, to have that overseer mentality around them all the time. Um, he also makes the point that there has been an overall trend towards harsher punishments within school, driving the rise of mass incarceration. As soon as we start policing children to that level and criminalizing behavioral issues, we open the door for those behavioral issues to exacerbate um, and become more violent. And it's a cyclical thing at that point. Uh, it's, it just goes on and on. The behavior becomes more violent. The response becomes violent, more violent still. And before long, you have children who have grown up within this cycle who are now perpetuating the cycle into adulthood and then ending up in prison. Um, back in 1994, President Bill Clinton signed into law is called the Gun Free Schools Act, which ushered in a zero tolerance school discipline policy. It followed that legislatures and school administrators embraced a raft of harsh disciplinary codes, placing surveillance systems, metal detectors, and huge numbers of police in school. So it's gone back that far. We've seen this. So now we are talking about almost just short of 30 years of this kind of response in our schools. So several generations of children moving through school in which it's become increasingly military-like or uh, deemed as a criminal environment, particularly in the inner cities. So this becomes problematic. It also follows the rise in the increase of gang activity, which of course is people looking for community. And those environments become hotbeds for criminal activity as a way to make money moving into adulthood, ending up therefore in prison. So it's kind of interesting to watch the progression. Uh, it's also very sad to watch the progression. Um, but I wanted to read this one part because I thought it was very telling. 
um, there was a keynote speaker at a convention who was an anti-terrorism expert. He had no domestic law enforcement or pedagogical training. Um, he warned the officers at this conference. This was his words to them. You've got people in your schools right now planning a Columbine. Every town, every university has a CHO or the Virginia Tech shooter. And in every state, we have Al-Qaeda cells thinking of it. Every school is a possible target of attack. You've got to be a one-man fighting force. You got to have enough guns and ammunition and body armor to stay alive. You should be walking around in school every day in complete tactical equipment with semi-automatic weapons and five rounds of ammo. You can no longer afford to think of yourselves as peace officers. You must think of yourselves as soldiers at war because we're going to ask you to act like soldiers. Yeah, that's a problem. He's talking about our schools where our children are. He's talking about arming men and telling them that their job is no longer to keep the peace, but that they are to go on the offensive and to be soldiers. So that's the mindset that permeated the school policing ideas. Um, in 2010, the Southern Paul Law Poverty Law Center filed a class action lawsuit against the Birmingham, Alabama schools, claiming that they were systematically using excessive force. That's what you're seeing more and more, that there is, there is this, this race towards enhanced um, excessive use of force to control situations rather than appealing to people on a human level. We are just simply enforcing. And that, of course, comes with a lot of a lot of problems and a lot of really bad outcomes. Um, I'm going to jump ahead again. I want to get around to some of these other subject matters. Um, so let me move forward here. Sorry, my book closed. Um, I want to talk a little bit about mental health because I really feel like that's very, very important in this conversation. Um, one of the, I'm going to read again. One of the most tragic developments in policing in the last 40 years has been that has been the massive expansion of their role in managing people with mental illnesses and other psychi psychiatric disabilities. The police have always had to deal with mentally ill individuals whose behavior are criminal or create a substantial public nuisance. With the massive deterioration in mental health services, the scope and number of these interactions have changed. The police are often the main agency engaged in both emergency and ongoing management of segments of this population. Ongoing management has been turned over to police officers who are not trained in this field rather than mental health providers. We have done a disservice in our, in our culture, in our society, um, by devaluing people with mental health issues and saying that they're just criminal. Um, Many of, I know quite a few mental health providers who are working tirelessly with people that are now in homeless state because they're mentally ill. Um, and yet we just often as citizens see them as a nuisance, as problematic, as criminals and in need of being policed. Um, with psychoactive drugs, um, that, that brought like increased independence for many people in recent decades. Um, but a lot of them are not capable or are not willing to maintain a pharmacological treatment. So that creates an issue. 
Uh, U.S. police officers kill hundreds of people with mental illness every year, according to account by The Guardian. The Treatment Advocacy Center reviewed the literature on fatal police encounters and estimates that one in every four police killings is of a person with a mental illness, meaning that they are 16 times more likely to be killed by police than any other people group. Um, And I wanted to read a few of these for you. Uh, they're, They're terribly sad, but we have to recognize the scope of what we're talking about. Um, in August 2014, and I'm, I cannot pronounce this gentleman's name, Kaijim Kai Powell was clearly mentally distraught and had a knife. Officers arrived on the scene and yelled commands at him from dozens of feet away. When Powell took a few steps towards him, they shot him to death. In May 2015, the mother of Jason Harrison called 911 requesting help for her son, who was refusing to take his medication. When the police arrived, She casually walked outside, followed by her son, who was carrying a screwdriver. When the officer saw him, he began yelling commands to drop the screwdriver and within seconds had opened fire, killing the young man. Uh, In December 2014, New York police killed a man with a knife who had stabbed someone in a Jewish religious school and was shouting about killing Jews. The video shows local congregants trying to calm him and pleading with police not to shoot but police destabilized the situation by yelling commands and pointing weapons. Uh, The author states that in each of these cases, officers relied on standard procedure for an armed suspect, which is to yell commands and prepare to use deadly force, even though most of them had received training in how to de-escalate confrontations with mentally uh, ill individuals. This is problematic. We have huge numbers of people in our country who, of course, are suffering in different forms of mental illness, some that appear more violent than others. Um, But we have stigmatized mental health problems in our country to the point that people are afraid rather than willing to help. And now we have decided that those individuals must be policed. And often, even though there's some foundational level training with regard to mental health issues in the police force, there's not enough to de-escalate these kind of situations so that these worst case scenarios ha- don't happen. Um, and so he goes into a very large discussion on that. And that's something I'm positive we're going to come back to uh, as we get more in depth on this subject, because it is so very prevalent. It is so very problematic. Um, of course, one of the, the things that he mentions in here is um, outreach teams being employed in the cities and, and to help with this again, taking from those budgets that may be overly compensated towards military weapons, military grade weapons or response teams, and rather using that money to create these teams and create this, create this outlet for mental health professionals to actually become involved and help in the policing of these individuals so that we can avoid these kind of tragedies, um, because they just shouldn't happen. They are, they should be so incredibly far in between that they're almost non-existent. Um, I'm coming to the end of my time. And because of that, I kind of want to jump ahead to some of the conclusions that he's come to. And again, as I said, I want to come back to the subject matter because I think it's very, very important. Um, so some of his conclusions, people adapt their behavior to a dysfunctional environment where unemployment, violence, and entrenched poverty are the norm. 
Even after 20 years of declining crime rates, there are neighborhoods where violence remains a major problem. These areas are almost all extremely poor, racially segregated, and geographically and socially isolated. The response of many cities has been further intensive policing. And recent crime increases and social unrest in places like Chicago, Milwaukee, and Charlotte attest to the failure to end abusive policing or procedure safe or, pro- or produce safety. The most segregated and racially unequal cities in the count in the country are the most violent. There's a reason. We have to start addressing those reasons. We can't keep slapping band-aids on societal issues and saying that we're making headway. We have to start getting down to the to the root issues of these problems and developing solutions that are based on that. Um, the Black Youth Project in Chicago envisions a program for economic development that would substantially improve the lives of people in high crime communities as an alternative to relying on police and prisons. Um, that's the stuff we have to get behind. We have to start putting money in those areas. Um, going back to uh, using the, the subject matter of abortion as an example, often we want to just use law and say, we're outlawing this and that solves the problem. We all know that's not true. But addressing those core issues that are the reason women seek out abortions, that is the, that is where we should be focusing our time. So we should be looking at healthcare. We should be looking at uh, living conditions. We should be looking at um, spousal support and child support situations. Those things in which women feel helpless and end up seeking the solution. That is how we actually lower those things. So as it pertains to this subject matter, again, all of that was my opinion, but as it pertains to this subject matter, we have to start looking at circumstances from a different perspective. We have to start looking at them and saying, what are the, what are some out of the box ways that we can start addressing these issues um, that don't just rely on how, on how we train our police officers. Yes, that has to be a part of the equation. It must be a part of the discussion, but all of these other things have to as well. What we're willing to accept in the schooling of our children, what we're willing to accept in the conditions of our neighborhoods and our communities, Uh, addressing those issues that deal with discrimination. And the author actually makes an argument for reparative um, uh, reparations as well. Uh, That's another subject matter that I actually don't know very much about. And on the surface level, I go, how would that work? But maybe that is something we have to start looking at and investigating. We have to become better at addressing the issues that are so badly of affecting our communities and our societies and our country as a whole. Um, another avenue is we have to hold our elected representatives to a standard that says these things are important. We expect you to address them, not just give them mouth service while you're getting elected. I, I, I think that's true in almost every subject matter. As it pertains to how we run our country and our societies and our states, our communities, our cities, our towns, those elected officials are the ones that are standing up, holding up their hands and saying, vote me in because I have good ideas. We have to hold them to accountability on those ideas. We have to say you, you have to be championing, championing these ideas and creating an environment in which we are seeking solutions and not just throwing money at a circumstance in the same old way that we've always done it. It's not working. 
I feel like that was a lot. Um, and it doesn't even, doesn't even scratch the surface of this subject. So as I said, this is more of an overview of a, of a, an area in which I'm interested. Um, and I have somebody that will be sitting down with me and sharing the microphone to discuss this topic. Um, but from the perspective of another book, so we will actually be able to mix some ideas and, and start identifying deeper into the issues. And hopefully these authors are coming up with some ideas that are founded on research that are founded on, um, care and concern often for the least of those of our society and those most violently oppressed. Um, so I'm, I'm sad to end the conversation because I really feel like I barely started it, but at the same time, uh, it's an overwhelming subject, so it should take some time. And with that, I'm going to say thank you for joining me today on Bookish. Um, those of you that are interested, you can actually find Bookish on any of your uh, podcasting platforms. There is a Facebook group. I have been woefully inadequate at being active in that group. I need to change that and turn that around. Uh, but certainly come and join us and start a discussion. Enjoy a book. Share the book. Ask questions. Um, suggest books for the podcast. All of those things are invited and um, are something that I would love to be a part of with you. So with that, thank you for joining us today. And I look forward to sitting down with a new book with you next time. Take care.
Thanks, Michelle.